I asked you to pick a song that captures your writing process, paired with a book that has helped you develop your craft as a writer. I picked The Eloquence of the Scribes, which we talked about earlier, and I paired it with a song by the Nubian, Makeda, which is a beautiful song. I think in every book that I've written, it's been a song that's been a constant. I've always listened to Makeda. Welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast that celebrates the joy of reading by flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. I'm your host, Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me as I take you on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Today's episode is a deluxe conversation with a critically acclaimed author and researcher, Aisha Haruna Atta, who very generously explained what it means when writers speak of being possessed by a story or a character. She also speak on the magical process of writing her recently published YA novel, The Deep Blue Between, a multi-directional migration story of displaced twins set in 1800s Accra, Ghana, and its predecessor, The Hundred Walls of Salaga. We use the music of Mara Andrade, Le Nubian, Sampa the Great, Nina Simone, Salif Keita, and so much more. Continue the conversation by sharing your thoughts on Twitter and Instagram by tagging us at Books and Rhymes. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review of Books and Rhymes, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast listening platforms. Aisha Haruna Atta has curated an exciting and just, ooh, scintillating playlist to go with this episode. I strongly recommend you listen to it because, fam, it hits all the right spotty yoddy yoddy woo Aisha Harunata's playlist takes you to Ghana to Nigeria to Brazil and Cape Verde she takes you literally all around the world enjoy this episode Aisha welcome 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 thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you you don't know how much I've been looking forward to this you are stroking my ego and just with the excited (laughs) for the listeners who can't see this I have my claws out and I'm going burr By the way, I always ask every guest this question. What I want to do for posterity is to archive the correct pronunciation of authors' names. How do you pronounce your full name? Okay, so Aisha Haruna Atta. So there's a bit of a sing-song to it. Aisha Haruna Atta. So my dad is a journalist in Ghana, and so his name is quite a famous one. So people say, Haruna Atta, Haruna Atta. Or like all sorts of things, Haruna, all sorts of versions. I've heard it all. And then with my own name, like people here say Ayesha, Ayesha, with the French accent, they just can't wrap them, their minds around the fact that it's the same name, whether it's A-I-C-H-A or S-H-A. But yeah, I've heard so many versions of my name. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Um, my name is Sarah, so you know. Except in Nigeria, it's Sarah. And there is a... <laughs> <laughs> why and when anyone calls me like that i'm like what have i done wrong what have i done exactly whereas in england it's 
Sarah. It's like, ooh, mm-hmm. Sarah. Ooh, <laughs> you surprised me because I sent Aisha her questions just about 12 midnight mm-hmm. thinking oh okay it's gonna take Aisha some time I woke up the next morning <laughs> on my inbox yes <laughs> all the songs playlists books I, 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 I what Aisha please talk us through please I beg okay so you probably all know out there those of you who know me that I have a son who is he's turning four it just happened that he had a sleepover that night that Sarah sent her requests in, you know? So I said, ah, if this boy is not here, just do it now, Aisha, because he's going to come home in the next three hours and you're done for. So I went into full super mama mode. <laughs> but I had, I had already done the playlist for the Deep Blue Between because... I wrote it with a lot of music. So I was like, I'm going to do this before Sarah even asked me for it. The other questions I had to think about. But yeah, I had a lot of fun doing it because I love music and I love books. So hey, I, I really enjoyed doing that. Oh, yeah. so you said that you wrote The Deep Blue Between with a lot of music. Yes. How long did it take you to write the book? This book was magical. It was really magical. I, so I finished The Hundred Dollars of Salaga maybe 2016, because that's when Bibi Bakari Yusuf of Kasava Republic bought it. So no, that's not true. She bought it 2016, but then we had to edit some more. So 2017, it was done. And then I meet Sarah Ododina of Pushkin's Children in 2018. And she says, have you thought of writing historical fiction for for children or for young adults. And I'm like, you know what? These girls have been haunting me for a while. So what about them? And she said, write me a proposal. So I sent the proposal by the end of 2018. So it was finished by 2019. I wrote it like in months. It's the fastest book I've ever written in my life. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. A month. In months, not a month. <laughs> Plural, no, not a month. Ooh, that no. Some people do that actually, but not me. You said that when you were writing the deep blue between you listen to a lot of music and your writing process involves music. So if you could pick a song that captures the process of writing the deep blue between, or a song that when you hear it, it transports you to a particular scene or a time that you're writing the book, which song is it? I think it's Berin Bell. It's a song that has been reproduced by many Brazilian and Portuguese artists, Cape Verdean even. Favorite version is probably the Myra Andrade version. I love her voice. It is, I think, originally produced or, and, and sung. There's some versions with songs and there's some versions with just the instruments. <laughs> The berimbau is that distinctly Brazilian sound. I love it. So that sound, and um, it's a string instrument. I think there's just one string, and then there's a bow and string, and a little bow. So that's the berimbau. And um, this song plays with that instrument, and it's just the sound. 
just transports me to being on the ocean and traveling to Brazil, which is what one of our dear characters has to do. And every time I hear it, I, I think it, I'm just transported to this character and what she could have been experiencing and feeling. So it's on the playlist. So you didn't get me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn! <laughs> Yeah, that's the song. And it's not fair because the, the book is about twins, Hasana and Husina. And this song leans heavily on Husina's side, but I think it's, it is the song that encapsulates what writing the Deep Blue Between felt like. Because it was a book of feelings for me. It was very much in, in the heart area. Yeah, I put the brain aside for a little bit and just let myself feel my way through the book. I think music is such a great way of opening that up yeah. to marry the heart and the mind i love your writing i like your research i really enjoy you i enjoy talking to you you have a beautiful spirit and i'm so thankful that we know each other and we met you have written four books two are widely available in the west for me at least um this um, hundred walls of slaga which we're going to discuss later was published by Safari public press in 2018 mm-hmm. your new book the deep blue between is published by pushkin press in the uk Hamatan rain your first novel, your second novel. Saturday Shadows. Pick a book that sparked your desire to become a writer, paired with a song that captures the emotion that the book elicits in mm-hmm. you. And you picked... 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Delicious. Oh, I just got her copy. I've got Yeah, I have to do a show and tell thing, even though you guys aren't going to see this. Sorry, guys. And this is this is my parents' version, so it's like really old and just the way I like my books. This book has lived. Oh, it's it was from my auntie Dedo. If she listens to this, she lives in the UK. <laughs> I see her name here. Christmas 1985. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So my parents never returned this to her. Terrible people. So Auntie Dedo, I have your book here in Senegal. This was the hardest question for me because Miss Sarah over here asked me to think about a song that not quite went with the book, but elicited an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So I think when I finally got around to reading this book, I was in college. And I was thinking, no, give a, give a Toni Morrison title because she's the one who really inspired you to write when you were 13, 14. But not quite because at 13, 14, I was determined to become a doctor. So she, 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 she planted something in me, but it didn't really sprout or germinate until much later. And I think it was 100 Years of Solitude that just flipped the switch for me. And I said, I need to write a multi-generational book. I need to do this. I need to somehow manage to find some way to do this. So I was in college when I finally read it. And I paired the book with a song by Reese. Because I, I went through so many versions of her song. Wow. Okay, when with They Say Vision. Okay, I wanted to explain why you went with They Say Vision and okay. why Toonami would have been the, the other option because you were like, wow, like you. It's like, how could I? I know, because I went through so many versions of the songs. I think They Say Vision just because of how wide ranging it is and how at the time I discovered her, I was also beginning to curate my own tastes in books and music. Because for a long time, I would listen to whatever anybody told me to listen to, whether I was my friends or the DJs in the school jams or the radio. You know, I hadn't had the chance to actually go out and 
make my own choices in music. I grew up luckily in a family that loves music. My dad would on Sundays play classical music and then the next day we'd be listening to Queen. My mother was a child of the 70s, so we'd be listening to The Temptations. Fela Kuti would be not far from all of this and Bob Marley. And so I had all this music around me, but I hadn't had the chance to figure out what I liked as a person. So Reese was one of those artists. She was one of the first artists I discovered all on my own, which is similar to reading The 100, 100 Years of Solitude. It was a book that I went out to look for. So I think that's why I chose that artist in particular. But the song, why Tsunami versus They Say Vision in the end? Maybe just a question of lyrics and what she was talking about. And I think They Say Vision struck a closer chord than Tsunami did, even though I feel like the range of emotion was stronger with Tsunami. I think you'll have to play both songs in the end, Sarah. I'm basically asking to justify yeah. why the songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Tsunami has the, the emotions, the same kind of emotions in the book. vision just because of like I said range because this is a book that spans generations and it's a look into a country past and future it's vision you said that the hundred um 100 years of solitude yeah. flipped the switch in you so Morrison yes. ignited a flame and uh, 100 yeah he just doused it in like yeah petrol yeah 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 as a 13 14 year old a spark was lit within you to pursue writing or to develop the craft of writing I wanted to change the world I felt like doctors could change the world writing my parents were both journalists at the time and they were poor they're poor. <laughs> Sorry, but it didn't seem like the kind of life I wanted for myself. <laughs> so shallow. <laughs> you, you, you want to take care of them too, right? So if you end up doing the same thing, who's going to take care of who in the end? But how is that though? How is the present, your present reality as a writer, how does that compare with your young imagination, mm -hmm. your childish imagination? what a writer is? I think it's bloomed into something else. I couldn't even imagine this. I couldn't even imagine that my books would travel. To me, like my parents were writers in Ghana. They were writing about Ghana. They had a newspaper. So it was within the confines of this country. My books have been translated into how many languages have traveled oceans. I don't think I imagined that as a 13, 14 year old. I thought, okay, maybe I'll continue the family business, maybe have a magazine for West Africa if it actually could do that. But to have my book actually be read in Dutch, in Brazilian Portuguese, and hopefully one day Arabic and Chinese, you know, is mind-blowing. So I think if I could go back and tell that 13-year-old, like, dream big, dream big. This is, yeah, this will just explode there have been moments when it has been similar because 
I've been dirt poor <laughs> and it's like, wow, when is this going to actually pay well? But I've always, I've been a hustler my whole life. So I'm always enterprising some other side gig or some other projects, usually writing related. I've been lucky to be able to do that. And so whether it's like translating or editing or ghostwriting here and there, it's been an interesting process. Very different from my parents' past. Very, very different. Yeah. Out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak? So I speak, let's see, French and English quite fluently. I took part in this amazing project a few years ago. So I could actually boast and say I can sort of read Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah, it's a dead language, but with a dictionary, with the help of a dictionary, I can actually identify words and then translate them. Meaning might take a little while to get to, but I can actually... Yeah, decipher, decipher the language, thanks to a project that I joined um, a few years ago. My mother tongue is Chui, which I speak very, very badly, so badly. And then I learned Ga, the language of Accra, in school. And I refused to speak Ga because every time I did as a child, I was just ridiculed. And so I, I don't. And I have a group of friends that are all Ga speakers. So they talk to me and I respond in English and it's fine. <laughs> I would love to speak Hausa. I would so love to speak Hausa. It's such a gorgeous language. I'm trying to learn Wolof because I live here in Senegal and I'm going on five years and it's embarrassing that I can't speak Wolof. And what doesn't work, works or doesn't work for me is the fact that I look Senegalese. So then people pick me up in their taxis and they're like, oh yeah, my sister, Nangadaf, and I'm responding and then they throw something my way and I'm like, ah, sorry, <laughs> I can't speak Wolof. And they're like, you're being stuck up. No, 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 what is this? I'm like, I'm truly not Senegalese, sorry. So yeah, that many languages. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I watched your interview with mm-hmm. Brita Paper on ITV and I thought that was one of the best mm-hmm. interviews that I've watched in a very long time. When you started speaking about, I'm glad you mentioned the mm-hmm. Egyptian translation. When you started talking about that, I said, <laughs> okay. when you started speaking about the translation project, I said, fam. So could you tell our listeners more more about it? Because I think it is a very exciting project. It is. It, is, it is one of those things that for me, I don't know if it is an academic endeavor, but to me, it highlights this gap 
between academia mm-hmm. and and the masses yes and everybody else yes how there are certain exciting projects that would be of great benefits to everyone else taking place within a scholastic space but for some reason it doesn't trickle down to everyone yeah and i think with this group aikwe ama's vision because he was the brains behind it was to be a bridge because he is an academic but he's a reluctant one you know he really wants to be with the people Right now he's working on videos to transmit his message, like any way he can reach the people. I think um, he, he will turn that stone. So his idea was the way Europeans will go to Roman history, to Latin and Greek as their actual, and everything past, like everything about Europe, they will link to, to, to Greek and, um, and Latin. He says Africans can do the same thing with ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. He assembled together a group of people who were interested in working with him. And I was lucky to be one of the people to to be called into this project because I'd worked with him previously as a 23-year-old when I was learning to write my first book. And he wrote to me and he said, you know how to do it now. You have the technique to come and get content. I came here and lived in this house by a reserve all by myself and took a dictionary, learned the alphabets, and we would sit down, take an ancient text. All of these texts have, most of them have been translated already, so you can find other versions. And we would painstakingly, line by line, take the letters and translate them. And then he also decided to publish them, and not just to publish them in English or French, but to publish them in our local languages. So they're really amazing. You take one book and whatever your language is, whether it's Wolof or I think he's done Yoruba, he's done, we did Fulani, we did Hausa, Akan, KwaZulu, Swahili, as many African languages as we could find translators for, all in one book. So you just take your language and follow along and you can see the hieroglyphs at the top of the page, find your language and follow along. So four books came out of that project and they span a wide range of topics. So the first one is about this man who is exiled from his homeland and wants to go home. The second one is about a man who's cheated by a public official and he's so eloquent that these magistrates, instead of doing the right thing, ask him to come every day. So he goes back to plead nine times, but it's so beautiful. And it just shows you how African languages languages are so rich and the proverbs and with that project in particular, that's when I joined them. Sometimes we would get stuck. Like, how do we translate this idea? And the only way to decrypt things was to think in our own languages. So there was a man from Senegal. Um, I was from, I'm from Ghana. There's um, a man from Burkina Faso. So each of us would have our own languages to help decipher whatever the text was trying to tell us. It was amazing when our local languages would crack the code. That was the second one. There was a love story, which is my favorite. A a 3,000-year-old, 4,000-year-old love story from this continent. Can you imagine? And it's written in stone. It's like, or papyrus. I'm not sure which one it was, but one or the the other, you know? It's a 3,000-year-old love story from the continent of Africa. And I think... That speaks volumes because African literature over the over the years has sort of been pigeonholed. You know, it has to be certain topics. It has to have a certain gravitas or it doesn't count. But on our continent, we have this 3,000-year-old love story. It's like, think about it. Human beings are not just one thing. 
And then the fourth story is um, a very serious topic. It, the instructions of Tahutep. So it's this old man who is leaving behind instructions for life. Like, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do that. It was really a life-changing project for me because I think having grown up in the Ghanaian educational system, I was very myopic. Like for me, life began with Euro the European appearance on the continent. Even though my father is Muslim, I didn't even, I couldn't even think that Islam was older than, than Europe on the continent. And then even older than Islam is all of this rich culture and literature and philosophy. So it was life changing. It was, and I want everyone to read that book, every child of the continent and beyond to read some of these books we translated because it just really does change your mind and scope. So the first one is called Sanhat, S-A-N-H-A-T. The second one is Saheti Pen. So Saheti is written S-K-H-T-Y, P-N. So it translated, it means this peasant, just this peasant. Sanhat is in the Egyptian language, but in, in Greek, it's written as Sinuhe. So one can Google these things, Sinuhe. But I think if one searches for the eloquent peasant and then look for maybe Ayikwe Ama or Aishata, it should come up easily. And then from there, you can find the other titles. And the third one is On Love Sublime. Um, lovely. I love that book. And then the fourth one is The Instructions of Tahotep. This project sounds exciting. I shall be doing the goggles, as my people call it. I'll be doing the goggles. <laughs> <laughs> Goggle it. <laughs> like, how does two O's translate into an O? <laughs> in our languages I don't know one of the projects that we never got around to doing that that Ayikwe Ama is envisioning is also the creation of an African language based off of these hieroglyphics also a study of as many African languages as we can so you take a thousand letters in ancient Egyptian take those thousand words in Wolof do a comparative analysis in Yoruba, in Igbo, in Hausa, in, Li, um, in, in Kiswahili, in Kikongo, and then see where the commonalities are. The Bantu languages will just make it easier for us anyway, but I think it, it has to be a democratic process. Take the words that sound the most interesting or the most, that resonate the most in the heart and create something. And that way, all these barriers and borders that we put up come crashing down continent this is a dream project he it's his project it's his vision but i would love to run with it and i've been talking about it for some time now but i think i need to stop talking and get into the action of it yeah hearing you talk about love sublime three thousand year old love story also connects to what margaret busby has done with daughters of africa and new daughters of africa mm -hmm. so which song captures the process for you of this new discovery and this bridging of the gap and filling the void le nubien the song chek ante la forêt entrelacée de lianes épineuses tu as élagué traçant les sentiers de la science Les marécages infestés de monstres carnivores Faussaires de l'histoire, tu as traversé Recherchant les fossiles de la vérité La nuit dans froide de solitude I heard this song in college Again, a time when I'm, I'm discovering myself 
But they were talking about Sheikh Ante Job, who I didn't really know about then. And I wouldn't discover until I came to Senegal. So he's one of the, the continent's scientists, intellectuals. He was a politician as well. But he's one of the first people on this side of the continent or in Senegal to actually begin to do that work of bridging the gap. And he took his, his local languages, he took Wolof, and he said there are certain words that are linked to ancient Egypt. And then he also would do scientific analysis. So he was the one who actually asserted that Egyptians were African, like in, in their DNA, they were African. So he got a lot of flack for it. But he is one of the people who actually began this work. And thanks to him, Ayikwe Ama moved to Senegal. Thanks to Ayikwe Ama moving to Senegal, I'm here. <laughs> so I think that song, Shek Anta Job, because this man is, is the reason why I'm doing some of this work today. The Nubia, Shek Anta Job. For the listeners, would you mind saying the t- name of the book, the full title, and who wrote it? So the book, it's, uh, the book is called The Eloquence of the Scribes, a memoir on the sources and resources of African literature. And this is by Ayikwe Ama. And I think anybody who wants to write, any African who wants to write, needs to have this as a craft book too. I think I found a little short quote on Sheikh Antajop in this book. I love the way Ama writes. He does not mince his word. To this slavish colonial drivel, Another Senegalese intellectual, Sheikh Antadji, opposed a totally different conception of African identity, history, and culture. Far from accepting the European idea of Africa as a historyless, civilizationless, irrational realm of infancy, Job urged Africans to stop depending on European ideas of Africa, which he repeatedly demonstrated to be deliberately dishonest and false, to open our eyes, do our own research learn the necessary languages, acquire the necessary technical skills, so as to draw rational conclusions from our own studies on the nature of our society, history, philosophy, science, culture, and literature. With that quote in mind, your books, the two books that I've read of yours are historical fiction. And they discuss very specific subject matters that are not widely made known, more specifically intra-African slave trade and also the Africa-Brazilian connection. So the Hundred Rounds of Salaga and the Deep Blue Between, deeply researched historical novels. After reading the Hundred Rounds of Salaga, I, I, I was like, this woman has done a lot of research in this book. In the deep blue between, this narrated by teenagers. When I wrote my Insta review of the Hundred Walls of Salaga, I said that it's reminiscent of sitting at the feet of an elder regaling you of tales of years gone by. That was how the Hundred Walls of Salaga read to me the first time I read it. Your two most recent books, they speak directly to each other. The question I want to ask you is this, because I've only read those two books, how do they differ from your previous two books? Do you always write historical fiction? So the first book is a work of historical fiction and contemporary fiction all at once. It spans 50 years of Ghana's history. I, I, I think you should read it. It's baby Aisha, you know, 23-year-old Aisha. I had a book club reading of it a few months ago. I loved it, but I hadn't touched it in 
over five years, I think. So it was almost like peeling back all the layers that I've piled on now and, and going back to the kernel of who I was then. And it was sweet. It was really sweet. So that was 50 years of Ghana's history. And I think my work is slowly trying to figure out who I am, who my family is, who my clan is, who my, what my country is about, like who we are, like all these layers that have been, you know, molded over me through education, through family stories, through everything. When you begin to pick pick all those things apart. Who, who are we? And so some of my writing or a lot of my writing does that work. So the first book, Hamatan Rain, is doing that on the country level from Ghana's independence, literally from the moment she becomes independent to late 1990. The second book is the West African story. And I did that by creating a fictional West African space. And it's a contemporary book that's set in 1992, I think, I believe. And it's loosely based on Ghana's history, but also I had lived in Senegal by that point. So I, I borrowed some elements from them. A lot of my besties are from Nigeria. So from what they, you know, what they'd experienced growing up, I managed to create a mishmash of things and, and invent a West African, West African culture and country to try to also figure out what went wrong in a lot of our countries? Because the narrative is the same. Yeah, Senegal was never, never went through coup d'etat, but the same dysfunction you find here, I find in, one finds in, in Ghana. And then next door, Mali has been through another coup. Ghana had a succession of coups in the 70s, same with Nigeria. So it was trying to understand that dysfunction. And then I moved even further back in time because I, I realized that I had this ancestor who had been enslaved and she didn't go across the ocean. So again, one of those things that is mind blowing, but really shouldn't because of course it happened, internal slavery happened. But because of what we've been taught or we've been made to swallow, it was like, wait, what? There was slavery here? And she, you mean she, she was enslaved here? So that ate at me and I had to also begin to, to try and understand that larger West African story too. Way before these coup d'etats, way before even the colonial era, we were doing this. Yes, there were, there were systems that fed into other systems, but we are actually doing this to each other and why? So that's, that's how come The Hundred Worlds of Salaga was born. And I wrote a part of that book in Brazil. And again, my mind was blown because I knew that people had moved across the ocean to the Americas, but then actually went back and there was a back and forth movement. Wait, what? Nobody talks about that. Everybody just says that we lost our sisters and brothers to the Americas, but people actually did the back and forth movement and through that created all sorts of new religions and belief systems and ways of being. Wait, what? Why wasn't I taught that in school? So I think it always starts from yeah, having my mind blown. And things that should be self-evident or shouldn't be as um, astonishing as they are, but nobody talks about them. So then there's naive little me that says, whoa, this is so interesting. This changes the way I think about the world and about why we are the way we are, about why we have these dynamics, about why Accra is organized a certain way or Lagos is organized a certain way. 
So all these things come from, yeah, I think just having my naivete shaken or like a, a question thrown at me or just a discovery and then um, the worlds begin. So in a way they're all connected, my books. There's a, there's a thread that, that runs through them, but it, it starts with a question or just a, a shift in my, in my mind where it's like things are not actually the way you thought they are. So it's like you write to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. And then it becomes a bigger thing because then it's not just about me. And I think, well, if I know this, my sister should know this. My cousin should know this. Like this, this is important. And I'm, I'm the writer, but somebody else could take this piece of information and use it to effect some bigger societal change that maybe I'm not capable of, but an activist can take this information and, and use it. And I think therein lies the power of literature. I asked you to pick a book or story that inspired you to write your recently published young adult novel, The Deep Blue Between, paired with a song. And you picked. I picked Two Sisters by Ama Ata Edu. The song that goes with that is a beautiful song called Simple Love by Manifest. Two Sisters. Amai Jaidu, Auntie Amai call her. This is my, another, another well-loved book. I bought this for $3 on the, on the curb in New York. I saw it and I said, must have this. You talk about the effect the 100 Wells of Salakta had on you. I think Auntie Amai's writing is a singling. For me, she's, she's whispering these stories into my ear. It's so conversational and so, so wonderfully easy. I don't know how she does it. She just... She makes it seem easy and you know the easier it seems the harder it is to write so two sisters it actually has very little to do with the hundred wells of with the deep blue between sorry um it sounds like thematically that two sisters should be a, a thematic um linkage or connection but it's not it's one tiny line in this book this story is about a sugar daddy situation um, and it's set I think in the 1960s and it talks a bit about politics in Ghana at the time um, just you know post-colonial Ghana the start of the big man system you know the man who's going to take care of everybody else so like this sugar daddy has come and, and taken his his lover out to the beach Auntie Emma writes that they're in a car doing this doing their thing and so the old sea roared on this is a calm sea generally too calm in fact this gulf of guinea the natives sacrifice to him on tuesdays and once a year to celebrate him they might save their chickens their eggs and their yams and as for the feast once a year he doesn't pay much attention to it either they're always celebrating one thing or another and they surely don't need him for an excuse to celebrate one day more he has seen things happen along these beaches different things, contradictory things, or just repetitions of old patterns. He never interferes in their, in their affairs. Why should he? So the sea is personified and the sea is just looking on indifferently as these two people are doing something they shouldn't be doing. And to me, that was perfect for talking about the deeply between because the sea is this this divide between the sisters as well. For me, the sea is a woman. In, in Antiyama's story, it's a man, it's a, it's a he. But for me, it was, it was a she, or it is a, a, a she. And she, she's, 
she's boiling them up. She's between them. She's separating them. But at the same time, she's connecting them. So I took this image of the sea and I think stretched it out a bit more in the deep blue between and um, manifests this song, manifests song comes in because again of the simplicity of the song. A goddess, if I'm being honest, we don't do passive aggressive. If problems there, we go address it. I only want love if it's simple. Simple love. I want a simple love. Money cannot buy. I want a simple love. Money cannot buy. It's, it's talking about I, I need a simple love. Money can't buy. It's linked more to Auntie Emma's writing than it is to the theme of the sea. But then when, when he starts the song, when he goes on the video, you can hear the sea in the background. It's so magical how this book, some of the songs you asked me to think about or that came up in the, in the playlist, I would go on to just read the lyrics to see if they were you know, contradictory. And there's one song, I think we might come to it. I'm telling you, the translation was spot on. I listened to the song as I was writing. It was spot on for the chapter. Incredible. Um, this song was Vida Bella. This one is an older song by Elisette Cardoso. Praia branca, tristeza, mar sem fim. Lua nova, mulher pobre de mim. Vento sul que o seu corpo acarinhou. Céu azul de manhã me despertou. Spot on. So yeah, manifest song I pick for its simplicity and its sweetness. And I pick Auntie Amma's song because of the sea. And I listen to manifest song and it begins with the sound of the sea roaring. Magic. Was that an immediate connection for you to make? Because I know we spoke earlier about mm -hmm. the quickness with which you paired your books mm -hmm. and song selections how did this pairing this one was this one was uh, let me see because I, I have my eraser marks so yes no eraser marks on this one <laughs> the first one you asked me with the hundred years of solitude i actually have reese's let's love here so i think i think it's reese's whole album and then tsunami here and then i send you um they say vision in the end but with this one there are no eraser marks it's just manifest simple love it came organically like writing the sea because in the deep blue between on one hand we already established that it is written from multiple perspectives so each chapter is written from the perspective of a particular twin or either it's written with their voice or it narrates what is happening to them or what they're experiencing or seeing at that particular point in time but there was something you did which i don't know the technical term for it but there seemed to be an interruption there's a communication taking place, not verbal communication, but something. The sea has a very strong theme and motif in the book. How was it converting, you know, the oral sound of the sea, the visual imagination of the sea mm -hmm. into textual form? And not just any textual form, but creative mm -hmm. fiction for the reader. I think living by the sea has helped. 
I wake up sometimes to a, a crashing sea and I'm not directly on the beach. I live about 10 minutes from the sea. But some days the sea, she's so loud, you can hear her waves just hitting the beach. And you're like, what is going on, auntie? What's going on, mama? <laughs> and then there are days you go there and she's glassing and not a wave on her. So living in this space has definitely helped. I, I have the, the visceral and visual and um, tactile connection to her at all times here. And this was a dream I had for myself. I, I grew up in Accra, but Accra is a city that's turned her back on the sea. We don't really have, we have beaches, but people use it for all sorts of horrible things. So Auntie Emma's extracts that I read, this was in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and Accra was a lot cleaner then. But now you go to Accra beaches and you have to dodge certain things. While I liked the beach, it wasn't quite a place that I could go visit often. Like we went, my parents and I went when we lived by the sea, we lived about 15 minutes away at some point in our lives and we would go walk over there. But the city doesn't really care about the beach anymore or the sea. Um, maybe because of our history as well, it's this place to be, to be feared as a place where people are taken away and never come back. So psychologically, maybe we've swallowed that and just rebuilt and turned our backs on her because she's a thing that just takes away from, she gives too, but she takes a lot from us. So maybe that's why Accra is a city where the sea is there, but we, we just, we don't give her her due. And then now I live in this village, which is a lot more respectful of the sea. Some, I know some people here who are so respectful that they're afraid to even go to her. It hasn't been blocked off in the way Accra has been. So yeah, I hear her, I, I see her all the time. So she's almost in my, in my paws, she's, she's in me. And so I, writing her was quite easy because I could just, I could pour it out on the page and translate that. You asked also about the italics and I like to think of it as a, a, dream, a dream space or almost like a numinous space for the girls because that's where they, they reach out to each other in their dreams. But it's also the place where Christina goes when she's, communing with the Orishas. So it's almost like, yeah, the, this third space, the psyche, the, the dream world, the, and, and, and that space is almost like the sea as well, right? It's watery, it's, it's fluid. To, to get into that space, I think there was less craft and there was more possession. Yeah. Explain. I, I let the space write itself. This is the first book in which I've really let hard to do the work and I just sat down and said take me over use me as a medium in the hundred wells of, wells of Salaga there was a bit of that as well but I think I fought it because I was a bit scared of what I was doing but in this book I really just let the girls take over and then in in, in those spaces where they're dreaming where they're possessed where they're um, inhabited I said just write it for me because I, I don't know what that's like and by writing it, I learned what that was like. What is it like? Magical. It's magical. You can't control it. You might try to fight it. There were definitely moments, because I, I, I grew up 
as a scientist, I studied science. I wanted to become a doctor. So I'm very, I need to observe it. I need to see it. I need to smell it, taste it. I need to use my five senses to make sure that it's real. But in this, you're using a sixth sense. And there was one day when I was, I was doubting. I was like, nobody will buy this. This is impossible. I was going through a pretty tough time because, yeah, I was broke and poor. And my best friend was getting married. And this is my best friend I've known from since I was a baby. This would be my, she's my twin. This is my twin. And I couldn't go celebrate with my twin. And I had to break the news down to her. And I, I she, she couldn't even talk to me. She was like, okay. So then three days later, my dad calls me and he's like, I had a dream. And he doesn't know any of this. I haven't told him any of this. I mean, I had a dream. We went to a restaurant and he did something to bring this girl to tears. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? And then he intervened somehow in the dream. But I was like, this, this is really interesting. I'm like, it's, it's okay. I believe. Take me and let me write the book and finish. Because there were definitely moments when I really doubted the credibility of, of, of the story. But then life or this, this space would remind me through certain things that let go, let go and let it write itself. When writers speak about the process of bringing their books to life, it seems like you're in two camps in the two books that you know, speak to each other. There are some who are very much in control of the writing process. And there are others who allow themselves to be possessed by the story to bring the story to life. Having experienced both, because with the in control, you know, the craft, you can talk about that. I want you, if you don't mind, to help us demystify this process of being possessed by the story. What is that like? What is it like in the terms of what does it feel like? What does it look like? Can you explain the process of letting go? How do the characters write the story to use an arbitrary language? Do they physically take hold of your hands and just like bang, put it on paper? Because, you know, you know, as um, you and I, we've mm-hmm. grown up in West Africa. So we, we, exactly. we know what possession looks like. We've mm-hmm. seen people who are possessed physically and they're manifesting that possession. The way I imagine possession may be different from how right. you are describing possession. So what does possession look and feel and would appear to someone who is not familiar with this kind of writing possession? How would you explain it to them? What it feels like to me is eating, breathing, everything, the story. It's like looking out and seeing a flower and the flower reminds you of something in the story. You're not cut off from the world. You're still very much in the world, in the physical world of realness. But then your senses are constantly linking you back to the story. So whatever it is you're, you're perceiving, a bite of something, and the flavors are going to remind you of something in the story. So it's, it's sort of like living in two worlds at the same time. And I think it's just been alive. There's, I don't think there is much of a, of a mystery to it. I think it's just being alive. And like, I don't know if you meditate, Sarah. I think it's being meditative at the same time. It's like noticing things, but not, not letting them take over. So it's, yeah, it's being meditative, I think. For those who meditate, I think that's the closest um, description I can, I can 
give to to um, describe what it is like. So being open, being alive, being meditative, these are three states that I think for me best describe this mood. Because when, when I'm in intellectual craft mode, it's like I am creating, I take the pencil, I am writing down. Um, Hasana is going to move to Accra at this point. How am I going to move her to Accra? I need to do research. How do people, it's more like that. But when I'm in the meditative state, it's like I'm walking on the beach and someone walks across and I'm like, she can just, she can just do this. She can just walk across. So it's being observant. It's being meditative. It's not filling in the story yourself, which is what, what you're told in me meditation as well. It's like, just observe, you know, there's a river in front of you, just observe. So I think that's the closest description I can come to it. And it's a hard thing you're asking me to do because these are spaces that are are very um, esoteric, are very hard to pin down. And I think that's why maybe we've struggled with some of our own religions as well. Like you we talked about West Africa and a lot of West African religions are, are hard to put down in a book, you know? It's, it's not like you can take a, a Quran or you can take a Bible for our religions because they're in, in, in these felt spaces, in these liminal spaces. And, I have been to a possession right here in, in Senegal. It's called In-Depth. Very interesting. And um, there's a Senegalese writer, um, Ken Bugel, who I, I, I had the chance to sit on a panel with. And she describes it as a chance for women to finally express themselves because women are forced to, to take lots in and to not be as vocal in, in a lot of our societies. So in, in the In-Depth, there's a sort of, spiraling and the drums speak to you and then you're you're possessed but then you finally express what's in you out so there are women who are you know chased who are very shy and suddenly in these possession ceremonies they're asking for cigarettes or for alcohol and it's so interesting that kind of possession but in my case I think it's just observing just seeing what life what life holds and, and and letting myself be surprised and not being in control of everything because that's the other opposite of things i think a lot of women have been taught to to be in control like get your your child ready for school you have to control all of this and it's letting that go and just being open to not being blind anymore and that takes quiet it takes yeah a lot of peace and it's not an easy thing for us to get in in these times and spaces i'm reading women who run with the wolves and i think she does that too she talks about this this same kind of energy it's finding a wild woman and sometimes it takes just going into a quiet space in in any way that rings true to you so for me it's sometimes just sitting in front of the ocean sitting in front of nature. For somebody else, it's dancing, it's listening to music. And being receptive, you know, being receptive, going back to, to our very pure nature. And it sounds abstract, but I'm, I'm trying, trying, trying to, I'm trying to not be that abstract writer. <laughs> I'm trying. But um, I think for those who meditate, some of this will make sense. For those who are trying to find the wild woman, some of this will make sense. You've been talking about the wild woman <laughs> meditating and or being analytical and also writing intellectually. 
So I asked you to pick a song that captures your writing process in general, paired with a book that has helped you develop your craft as a writer. I picked The Eloquence of the Scribes, which we talked about earlier, and I paired it with a song by the Nubian, um, Makeda, which is a beautiful song. And I think in every book that I've written, it's been a song that's been a constant. I've always listened to Makeda. And it's only recently that I actually listened to the lyrics and it's asking you to do the exact thing that I'm doing. It's asking you to drop the lies, to actually go back and, and do research, find out who we are. Because I think of all the people on this planet, Africans, we've been told so many lies. We've been sold stories that aren't ours. And so that song and this book do that extra pleading of telling go back, go back in time and find out who, who we are. Yes, these things have happened to us, but the timeline is actually even longer than we realize. We've been here for the longest. Go back and do that work. It's just to find out the essence of who we are and then to use that to build because we're broken. We're actually a very broken people. When did you first read The Eloquence of Scribes and how has it influenced or impacted your writing? I read The Eloquence of Scribes um, when I first wrote Hamatan Rain. So this was in um, 2007 when I came here to Senegal. I had the writer of the book be my mentor. He was right by my side so I could pick his brain at the same time. So I, I, I cheated. I had the book and I had the brains behind the book as well. And it's a book I go back to often to just remind me of this work that I'm doing, because for some people it's like, what's the point in, in going back to the past? Let's, let's move forward. But we have a, a popular saying in, in Ghana, and then it's a motif that has traveled across the ocean of Sankofa. Just go back to the past, reach back, reach your bird neck back to the past if you want to move forward in life. So it's something I've definitely grown to believe and to practice and this book asks you to do that and also I go to it as a source for how to write because Alma he's not just talking about you know his um, literary forebears or intellectual forebears like Sheikh and Sajub he also tells you how to write so he is a consummate planner he teaches you how to plan a novel in this book and so that's how I first learned how to write all the elements that you need to, to write a book, like plot, narrative, character, um, dialogue. And he talks about that in this book. So it is a craft book and a book for, for African writers to, to go back and do some work. So I think in, in those two regards, this book helps me do that when I need the bare bones of how to create a scene or how to work on a character. I can go to this book to find those craft elements 
And then when I need to figure out the intellectual work as well, like why, the why I'm doing this, it's, it's a book that reminds me of, of that why, because it, it can get lost sometimes. And it can feel a little lonely because I feel like a lot of writers have their reasons for writing. But in my case, it's to do this work of Sankofa and it can feel lonely. So this book is a guide and a friend in, in those times of aloneness. That's um, The Eloquence of Scribes by Aikwe Amar, paired with Makida by Le Nubion. I like that you mentioned planners, because when you were talking earlier on about the process of writing the deep blue between. So it sounds like that was a panzer process, but I heard you speak at <laughs> the book launch of the Hundred Wealth of Salaga, of Salaga in London, at Waterstones in London. And you gave us a glimpse into the process of writing the book. Because the Hundred Wealth of Salaga is it's published by a lot of characters many characters but they're all memorable i remember them i may not remember the names because fam names and i were not good i know there is a german dude who was in love with one of the protagonists i know that the protagonist has a brother who was very soft and sensitive i know that obviously mr Loverman in the book as well <laughs> problematic mm-hmm. lover man you know about the husband mr masculine so fragile all these nicknames i'm giving this poor I people love it. <laughs> love it these are non-central characters but they leave a mark on the readers because they're not accidental. The things are very strong in Hundred Dollars of Salaga. It's an epic book, small, but it's epic. It stretches to America. You touch on the emancipation of the enslaved African-Americans in Hundred Dollars of Salaga. And we know this through one of the teachers. So um, one of the protagonists, her teacher is a woman who is very learned, very well read. So, I mean, I read this book years ago and I read it again recently in preparation for this conversation. And I remembered all these characters all over again. So the question I want to ask you about your craft is the intentionality behind it, right? How do you populate these characters? Because peripheral characters, you know, you write them and you park them in one corner. You make a mental note to bring them back when necessary in, in 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 the text or in the story how do you do that and also the language that you use as well in hundred Tours of salaga the language sounds it sounds like oral literature there are lots of onomatopoeias in the mm. book it's very descriptive because you are describing days of yore for the reader how do you do that? The intentionality, the planning, the, the historical, the research that you have done. How do you then make this research consumable for the reader without it being overbearing? What I do with any of my historical fiction is I begin with the research. I have to live in that time and space before I put any word on paper. So I just found a notebook the other day. I don't know why it decided to come and show, show itself up. It was in my husband's things. And he was like, oh, I think this is yours. And I hadn't seen it in three years. I hadn't seen it in three years. And this was the first 
Salaga Notebook. I began this, I think in 2012. This was a version in which a character from the present falls in a well and goes back in time. So that was the first iteration of The Hundred Wells of Salaga. Oh, it was like a fantasy novel. Like this modern girl falls in her grandmother's well in Salaga and goes back in time and meets this ancestor and sees her and she tries to get her out of enslavement. So this was the very first iteration. And some of those characters actually migrated into the final version, mm-hmm. like Mr. Loverman. <laughs> <laughs> Moro. Um, so it just came back to me the other day. I don't know why, but it did. So I was looking and I actually hand wrote a lot of those. But before the handwriting began, there was a research. So I, I would spend days ensconced in the um, Schoenbeck Center for, for Black Research in Harlem. I was living in New York at the time. And I would just be swallowed into these worlds. Luckily, the 1890s in Salaga had been heavily documented thanks to good old Europe that wanted to make its mark on everything and document everything and put its name on everything. We discovered it, we put our name on it type of thing, which is very annoying but helpful for today's researcher. So I just put myself, there were books like Salaga, The Struggle for Power. There was a whole collection called the Salaga Papers, which was everything and anything that had been written about Salaga between 1880 and 1899. Some of these people even became characters who ended up in the book. There was a Mala Musa, I think it was called in, in the book. So he was the German who could speak Hausa and then comes and he speaks with um, the landlord and he's telling him what's going on with the Germans and how he doesn't believe in the German vision of things. Um, so he was actually one of the people I read. So I immerse myself as fully as I can in that space before I begin to create. Like I, I need to know everything. What does it feel like inside a hut? Again, thanks to the meticulous, meticulousness of these European explorers and visitors, there were details about how a hut was built. I guess, you know, when you're living in that place and time, you're just living, you, you don't do that work of documentation. So as much as they were very problematic, the people who came from outside did this work of documenting and recording, and I was thankful for that. They showed everything that was new to, to, to their, their ways of being, and those were details that I could use to write my world. So I took their outsider's points of view and then used it to create an insider point of view. I put myself, after having done that research, in the skin of my ancestress, and said, okay, after you've built this hut, how does it actually feel? That's something that the outsider did not have. So again, that's when the, the, um, the spirit of possession sort of began because I had to really put myself in my grandmother's feet because I don't know if she wore shoes at the time. I don't think she did, even though her, her father was a shoemaker. I think it was very gendered that women didn't wear shoes and, and the men who did were usually the big men, like, Wuche's father and Wuche did wear shoes. So before anything begins, I've lived in this world. I've visited the world. I know it inside and out. And then I begin my planning. Then I get my Excel sheet. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) So this is something that I learned from this man, Ayukwe Ama, and from his book as well. And so you take your time and say, this is sort of what you want to happen. 
um, with the hundred wells, I was very detailed because I'd come from two books of having used that methodology to work. So we begin in 1892. This is what's going on. And it's great because when you're writing a historical fiction, there is the history to deal with. There is the other facts of things that took place. So I could use those as anchors and as, as points to, to signpost me. So in the Hundred Wells, I knew it would be about my great-grandmother who had been enslaved. But then as I was doing my research, as I was doing my full immersion into that space and time, I learned about princesses who could, change, who could choose their lovers, let's put it that way, even if they were already married or betrothed to another. So that was fascinating. And I had to write about, about a person like that. I thought okay, you have an enslaved person and then you have this person who is the freest woman in their society. Put them together. So that came from the research. It wasn't my initial intention. I started with a girl going back in time, but then through, through the immersion process, there were details that emerged and then gave me fodder for writing a newer character. So then Wuche was born she was a woman in this very patriarchal construct in society. So she wouldn't be able to do certain things. So give her a brother, give her somebody who is maybe a softer version of herself, who doesn't see power the same way that as, as she does or who doesn't even want it, but then it's going to be naturally passed on to him and use that to also create narrative tension. So these are details that come as I'm writing and as I'm planning. So those are, are more craft things. And then I write a very bad first draft. There's another book that's a craft book that I go back to and I'm not going to pair it with a song because no, I've already done it. <laughs> and this book is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. Oh, yes. Yes. It's another huge influence on my writing and in my own life because... Start with a bad first draft, with anything. Stop the perfection and perfectionism. Just, just start. Scribble. Just, just do it. And then come back and throw away, you know, chisel away, etch away. Then, you know, create your sculpture. So that book, too, is another one I go back to. And then I come back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And... That is how my process goes. So immersion, planning, bad first draft, rewrite, 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 rewrite as many times as you can until you get sick of it. Put it, in, put it away for a, a month or two or three or four if you have that luxury, and then come back again with fresh eyes. And then, this is really, really important, find a tribe. Find a group of people you can send your work to because feedback is so key. If you're thin-skinned like me, you're going to send your work out into the world, you're going to get feedback. Good feedback, negative feedback. And having a buffer, having that tribe will prepare you for that. And the tribe shouldn't be like a group of, you know, bootlickers who are going to tell you your work is fantastic. It should be people who tell you, who push you and who tell you, actually this character is flat. I don't, I don't believe for a second that this person will do that. Find a tribe of people who can give you feedback, even if it's one or two people. Find a, a workshop group and when they give you your the feedback, listen. Take certain things with a grain of salt. Take things that 
you find helpful and you can toss out the things that deep inside of you are like, no way, this is my vision and I'm sticking to it. And then if you have an agent or a publisher, then you send it to them. So yeah, that's a process. <laughs> I can't not ask writers about the process of getting published because I think mm-hmm. it's very important. It is. It is. Extremely important, especially given that you have been published by four different... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen... I've seen so many ways of, and 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 yeah facets of the industry so yeah why four different why different publishers for each one of your book so the first one was published here in senegal and it was uh ayikwe ama's co- uh cooperative peank books peank publishers so their model is not your traditional publishing model so they have a group of friends who come together and decide they like a book. And then one of the members or a couple of the members will put together the money to print it. And it's really, really cool. And that's how my first book was published. But once a book is printed, it has to get out there into the world. And so that's where I found the model a little difficult to work with because I was an unknown published writer. And no bookstore was just going to pick up my book without some legwork. And the publishing cooperative didn't have that side to it. So I ended up doing that work of putting my books in a suitcase and going and knocking door to door. Would you have me? And going to cultural spaces and, and saying, can I do a reading here? And it was lucky. I was really lucky. I teamed up with another writer, Nanai Kuya Buhamand. And she had the big name publisher. She had Simon & Schuster behind her. But we were doing the same thing. So it was very interesting to have that be my experience and then to have, you know, a partner and a person who had a big name behind them and then we're doing the same thing. So I thought, oh, you actually don't need the big name to to get out there because she's doing the same thing I am. We did that together. And Hamatan Rain... It was read by by readers in in the U.S., some in the U.K. I actually came to the U.K. My mom helped me finance a mini book tour. It was very cute. It was so cute. I went to like Centerprise Bookstore, which is no more. I actually did a reading there and it felt felt so heartwarming to be in this historic space, this book that has been published by a small outfit in Senegal. I'm doing this by myself and yet I'm able to come into spaces like this. In um, the U.S., I went to Blue Stockings in New York, which is this radical bookstore in, in, in New York. There's another famous one in D.C., Bus Boys and Poets. So I went to all these iconic spaces. In L.A., I went to SO1 Books with no budget at all. I was able to walk into these iconic spaces for not just Black books, but radical books, and, and I was able to get my little book into those spaces. And so that was the first, my first foray into publishing. And it was wonderful, but I wanted a wider readership. There's no, there's no shame in my, in my, in my, ambition, no. <laughs> in my yeah, I wanted, I wanted more people to read my work. So I asked you to pick a song that captures your writing process in general, paired with a book that has helped you develop your craft as a writer. I picked The Eloquence of the Scribes, which we talked about earlier. And I paired it with a song by Le Nubien, Makeda, which is a beautiful song. And I think in every book that I've written, it's been a song that's been a constant. I've always listened to Makeda. Mm-hmm. 
recently that I actually listened to the lyrics and it's asking you to do the exact thing that I'm doing. It's asking you to drop the lies, to actually go back and, and do research, find out who we are. Because I think of all the people on this planet, Africans, we've been told so many lies. We've been sold stories that aren't ours. That song and this book do that extra pleading of telling, go back, go back in time and find out who, who we are. Yes, these things have happened to us, but the timeline is actually even longer than we realize. We've been here for the longest. Go back and do that work. It's just to find out the essence of who we are and then to use that to build because we're broken. We're actually a very broken people. When did you first read The Eloquence of Scribes and how has it influenced or impacted your writing? I read The Eloquence of Scribes um, when I first wrote Hamatan Rain. So this was in um, 2007 when I came here to Senegal. I had the writer of the book be my mentor. He was right by my side so I could pick his brain at the same time. So I, I, I cheated. I had the book and I had the brains behind the book as well. It's a book I go back to often to just remind me of this work that I'm doing because for some people it's like, What's the point in, in going back to the past? Let's, let's move forward. But we have a, a popular saying in, in Ghana, and then it's a motif that has traveled across the ocean of Sankofa. Just go back to the past, reach back, reach your bird neck back to the past if you want to move forward in life. So it's something I've definitely grown to believe and to practice, and this book asks you to do that. And also... I go to it as a source for how to write because Alma, he's not just talking about, you know, his um, literary forebears or intellectual forebears like Shekhan Sajub. He also tells you how to write. So he is a consummate planner. He teaches you how to plan a novel in this book. And so that's how I first learned how to write all the elements that you need to, to write a book, like plot, narrative, character, dialogue. And he talks about that in this book. So it is a craft book and a book for, for African writers to, to go back and do some work. So I think in, in those two regards, this book helps me do that when I need the bare bones of how to create a scene or how to work on a character. I can go to this book to find those craft elements. And then when I need to figure out the intellectual work as well, like why, the why I'm doing this. It's, it's a book that reminds me of, of that why because it, it can get lost sometimes and it can feel a little lonely because I feel like a lot of writers have their reasons for writing. But in my case, it's to do this work of Sankofa and it can feel lonely. So this book is a guide and a friend in, in those times of aloneness. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's um, The Eloquence of Scribes by Aikwe Amar, paired with Makeda by Les Nubions. I like that you mentioned planners. When you were talking earlier on about the process of writing The Deep Blue Between, so it sounds like that was a panzer process, but I heard you speak at <laughs> the book launch of the 100 Wealth of Salaga, of Salaga in London, at Waterstones in London. And you gave us a glimpse into the process of writing the book. Because the 100 Wealth of Salaga is, is published by a lot of characters, many characters, but they're all memorable. I remember them. I may not remember the names because family names and I were not good. I know there is a German dude who was in love with one of the protagonists. I know that the protagonist has a brother who was very soft and sensitive. I know that obviously Mr. Loverman in the book as well, <laughs> problematic yeah. lover man. You know about the husband, Mr. Masculine, so fragile. All these nicknames I'm giving this poor I people. I love it. <laughs> love it. These are non-central characters but they leave a mark on the readers because they're not accidental the themes are very strong in 100 of Salaga. it's an epic book small but it's epic it stretches to america you touch on the emancipation of the enslaved african-americans in 100 of Salaga, and we know this through one of the teachers so um, one of the protagonists her teacher is a woman who is very learned, very well read. I read this book years ago and I read it again recently in preparation for this conversation. And I remembered all these characters all over again. So the question I want to ask you about your craft is the intentionality behind it, right? How do you populate these characters? Because peripheral characters, you know, you write them and you park them in one corner. You make a mental note to bring them back when necessary in the text or in the story how do you do that 
and also the language that you use as well. In Hundred Hours of Salaga, the language sounds, it sounds like oral literature. There are lots of onomatopoeias in the mm. book. It's very descriptive because you are describing days of yore for the reader. How do you do that? The intentionality, the planning, the, the historic, the research that you have done. How do you then make this research consumable for the reader without it being overbearing? What I do with any of my historical fiction is I begin with the research. I have to live in that time and space before I put any word on paper. So I just found a notebook the other day. I don't know why it decided to come and show, show itself up. It was in my husband's things. And he was like, oh, I think this is yours. And I hadn't seen it in three years. I hadn't seen it in three years. And this was the first Salaga notebook. I began this, I think in 2012. This was the version in which a character from the present falls in a well and goes back in time. So that was the first iteration of The Hundred Wells of Salaga. No. It was like a fantasy novel. Like this modern girl falls on her grandmother's well in Salaga and goes back in time and meets this ancestor and sees her and she tries to get her out of enslavement. So this was the very first iteration. And some of those characters actually migrated into the final version, mm-hmm. like Mr. Loverman. <laughs> <laughs> Moro. Um, so it just came back to me the other day. I don't know why, but it did. I was looking, and I actually hand wrote a lot of those. But before the handwriting began, there was a research. So I, I would spend days ensconced in the um, Schombeck Center for, for Black Research in Harlem. I was living in New York at the time. And I would just be swallowed into these worlds. Luckily, the 1890s in Salaga had been heavily documented thanks to good old Europe that wanted to make its mark on everything and document everything and put its name on everything. We discovered it, we put our name on it type of thing, which is very annoying but helpful for today's researcher. So I just put myself, there were books like Salaga, The Struggle for Power. There was a whole collection called the Salaga Papers, which was everything and anything that had been written about Salaga between 18... 80 and 1899. Some of these people even became characters who ended up in the book. There was a Mala Musa, I think it was called in, in the book. So he was the German who could speak Hausa and then comes and he speaks with um, the landlord and he's telling him what's going on with the Germans and how he doesn't believe in the German vision of things. Um, so he was actually one of the people I read. So I immerse myself as fully as I can in that space before I begin to create. Like, I, I need to know everything. What does it feel like inside a hut? Again, thanks to the meticulous, meticulousness of these European explorers and visitors, there were details about how a hut was built. I guess, you know, when you're living in that place and time, you're just living. You, you don't do that work of documentation. So as much as they were very problematic, the people who came from outside did this work of documenting and recording, and I was thankful for that. They showed everything that was new to, to, to their, their ways of being, and those were details that I could use to write my world. So I took their outsider's points of view 
and then used it to create an insider point of view. I put myself, after having done that research, in the skin of my ancestress and said, okay, after you've built this hut, how does it actually feel? That's something that the outsider did not have. So again, that's when the, the, um, the spirit of possession sort of began because I had to really put myself in my grandmother's feet because I don't know if she wore shoes at the time. I don't think she did, even though her, her father was a shoemaker. I think it was very gendered that women didn't wear shoes and, and the men who did were usually the big men, like Wuche's father, and Wuche did wear shoes. So before anything begins, I've lived in this world. I've visited the world. I know it inside and out. And then I begin my planning. Then I get my Excel sheet. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something that I learned from this man, Ayukwe Ama, and from his book as well. And so you take your time and say, this is sort of what you want to happen. Um, with the hundred wells, I was very detailed because I'd come from two books of having used that methodology to work. So we begin in 1892, this is what's going on. And it's great because when you're writing a historical fiction, there is the history to deal with. There is the other facts of things that took place. So I could use those as anchors and as, as points to, to signpost me. So in the Hundred Wells, I knew it would be about my great-grandmother who had been enslaved. But then as I was doing my research, as I was doing my full immersion into that space and time i learned about princesses who could change who could choose their lovers let's put it that way even if they were already married or betrothed to another so that was fascinating and i had to write about about a person like that i thought okay you have an enslaved person and then you have this person who is the freest woman in their society put them together so that came from the research. It wasn't my initial intention. I started with the girl going back in time, but then through, through the immersion process, there were details that emerged and then gave me fodder for writing a newer character. So then Wuche was born. She was a woman in this very patriarchal construct in society. So she wouldn't be able to do certain things. So give her a brother, give her somebody who is maybe a softer version of herself who doesn't see power the same way that as, as she does or who doesn't even want it, but then it's going to be naturally passed on to him and use that to also create narrative tension. So these are details that come as I'm writing and as I'm planning. So those are, are more craft things. And then I write a very bad first draft. There's another book that's a craft book that I go back to and I'm not going to pair it with a song because no, I've already done it. <laughs> And this book is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. Oh, yes. Yes. It's another huge influence on my writing and in my own life because start with a bad first draft, with anything. Stop the perfection and perfectionism. Just, just start. Scribble. Just, just do it. And then come back and throw away, you know, chisel away etch away then you know create your sculpture so that book too is another one i go back to and then i come back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and that is how my process goes so immersion planning bad first draft 
rewrite, 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 rewrite as many times as you can until you get sick of it. Put it in, put it away for a, a month or two or three or four if you have that luxury, and then come back again with fresh eyes. And then this is really, really important. Find a tribe. Find a group of people you can send your work to because feedback is so key. If you're thin-skinned like me, you're going to send your work out into the world, you're going to get feedback. Good feedback, negative feedback. And having a buffer, having that tribe will prepare you for that. And the tribe shouldn't be like a group of, you know, bootlickers who are going to tell you your work is fantastic. It should be people who tell you, who push you and who tell you, actually, this character is flat. I don't, I don't believe for a second that this person will do that. Find a tribe of people who can give you feedback, even if it's one or two people. Find a, a workshop group, and when they give you your the feedback, listen. Take certain things with a grain of salt. Take things that you find helpful, and you can toss out the things that deep inside of you are like, no way, this is my vision, and I'm sticking to it. And then if you have an agent or a publisher, then you send it to them. So I can't not ask writers about the process of getting published because I think mm -hmm. it's very important. It is. Especially given that you have been published by four different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen so many ways of, and, and, and yeah, facets of the industry. So, yeah. Why four different, why different publishers for each one of your book? So the first one was published here in Senegal and it was, uh, Ayikwe Amas Cooperative, her young publishers. So their model is not your traditional publishing model. So they have a group of friends who come together and decide they like a book. And then one of the members or a couple of the members will put together the money to print it. And it's really, really cool. That's how my first book was published. But once a book is printed, it has to get out there into the world. And so that's where I found the model a little difficult to work with because I was an unknown published writer. No bookstore was just gonna pick up my book without some legwork. And the publishing cooperative didn't have that side to it. So I ended up doing that work of putting my books in a suitcase and going and knocking door to door. Would you have me? And going to cultural spaces and, and saying, can I do a reading here? And it was lucky. I was really lucky. I teamed up with another writer, Nanai Kriya Buhamand, and she had the big name publisher. She had Simon & Schuster behind her. But we were doing the same thing. So it was very interesting to have that be my experience and then to have, you know, a partner and a person who had a big name behind them and then we were doing the same thing. So I thought, oh, you actually don't need the big name to to get out there because she's doing the same thing I am. We did that together and Hamatan Rain, it was read by, by readers in, in the US, some in the UK, I actually came to the UK. My mom helped me finance a mini book tour. It was very cute. It was so cute. I went to like Centerprise Bookstore, which is no more. I actually did a reading there and it felt, it felt so heartwarming to be in this historic space, this book that has been published by a small, outfit in Senegal. I'm doing this by myself and yet I'm able to come into spaces like this. In um, the US, I went to Blue Stockings in New York, which is this radical bookstore in, in, in New York. There's another famous one in DC, Bus Boys and Poets. So I went to all these iconic spaces. In LA, I went to SO1 Books with no budget at all. 
I was able to walk into these iconic spaces for not just black books, but radical books. And, and I was able to get my little book into those spaces. And so that was the first, my first foray into publishing. And it was wonderful, but I wanted a wider readership. I wanted more people to read my work. I didn't want to have to do the legwork all the time. I wanted to spend that time writing. I got an agent after that um, on, the, on the back of, the, of, of Hamatan Wayne's success because it was nominated for the Commonwealth Prize. It was a bit of the fire I needed to keep going because we are, we are failed creatures, creators, and sometimes it just takes one little thing to knock you off your feet and another little thing to boost you. So the prize was like, okay, okay, I can do this. This is, this is, this is going to keep me going. And I say this because writers who are starting off can easily get derailed or discouraged. And even if you don't win a prize, just, or if you're not nominated for a prize, just keep going, find, find ways to keep it going and remind yourself of why you're doing it. I think the why is an important thing to keep coming back to. So got an agent, they did that work of finding me a publisher. So they went with World Editions, which was also a new outfit at the time. And they, they were founded by a Dutch publisher that had, had been op in operation for a long time. They were an, uh, an established Dutch publishing house, De Guse, that wanted to make its introduction into the English-speaking world. So they launched World Editions in the UK and the Netherlands. And so I was one of their first English books. They did a lot of translations into English, but I was, I think, one or, one or two of the only titles that was written in English originally. It was experimental for them as it was for me. I think it could have done a lot better. I think I chose to come to Senegal at that time. So whatever legwork I could have done, I did not do. I accept that responsibility, but I think they could also have pushed a lot harder in the festival circuits. I didn't, I didn't have a book tour, I, whether virtual or otherwise. I, I was here when the book came out. I went nowhere. I actually on my own went to do a launch in Ghana because Ghana has always been such a receptive space for my book. Hamatan Rain sold out in Ghana. It was really successful there. So I said, I have to go back to Ghana and launch this book there on my own. The um, publishing house didn't pay for my, my ticket, nothing. I did that on my own. So I, I've been able to see the publishing industry in, in its different forms. And then with the third book, The Hundred Wells, BB came on board and she, I was so happy to have BB. I was so happy to have BB because she's a woman and she's an African and she was so enthusiastic about the project and that's all you need you need someone who believes in your project when you hear baby talking about the hundred wells of salaga you're like wow did i write this book <laughs> she believes in this book so having bb edit that's bb Kasabari public press yes. Yeah. How did that come to be? How did, how did, what was the introduction to Kasabari Public Press? My agents did it. There's no funny, creative, funny, uh, magical story. It was just a book that was submitted to a bunch of publishing houses. And I insisted because I'd seen some of her books come out at that point. I think I'd read um, Cloth Girl. I'd read um, Baba, Baba, Baba Segi's Wives. Um, so I'd seen some of her books around. And I said, just send it to her, send it to her. I think she might be interested in it. So my agents did. And she, she was one of the few people who latched onto it early. And she was like, there's a lot of work. You have to do a lot of work, Aisha. But 
I like it. And I was pregnant at the time. And she was like, well, we would like for you to edit this by the end of the year. So I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have this child any minute now. And I know like the first few months of a baby, I know, no, like you can't do anything else. But I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. You have your, you have your rewrites by the, by the end of December. So we signed, we said, yes, she sent two pages of edits, which to the writer is like, <gasps> so discouraging at first, but I've learned to be very appreciative of feedback, of editorial feedback, anything to make the book stronger. I still go through that first, you know, this is my baby a tearing apart emotion when I receive edits like that, but it's worth it going through that painful process of putting aside your ego, putting aside the fact that it's your, your baby and just, again, chiseling away and making it the best thing it can possibly be. So I, I've come to appreciate that a lot. Was your publisher aware of your mm-hmm. pregnancy? <laughs> she was. And, and that's why she gave me up to, up to December. I think it would have been like, this is due like at the end of the month. <laughs> what is the usual turnaround? What is a usual editorial turnaround for a book? I, I don't think I have a usual, Sarah. Every, everything has been so different. Like Kamatan, when I wrote in nine months, um, Saturday Shadows, I wrote over like, two years because I wrote it while I was doing my MFA. It was my MFA baby. So maybe that's my most um, crafted book. It's a book where I was taking what I was learning and putting into effect. So maybe it's why it wasn't as exciting for the everyday reader, but maybe for somebody who's into crafts. I think it's a very well-crafted book, if I do say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) So that took two years and some. I started it in 2011, and then it was published in 2015, so four years. The Hundred Wells of Salaga, I began research 2012. So there's overlap, too. Began immersing myself in research, and then it came out in 2018, so six years. But the actual writing of the book, once I decided on on the voice, on who was going to tell that story. I think that process began 2014, so 2014 to 2016, two years. Um, The deep blue between, months. Because that, again, I had a deadline. So I meet Sarah, October 2018. We sign a contract, January 2019. I start writing March 2019. The process with Sarah was also different because there was a lot of editorial input. She gives her feedback as you're writing. So it's a book we sort of wrote together. When it's done, there's a stamp on the book that says a Sarah Odedina book because she writes it with you. So it's a different process altogether as well. Yeah, every book has been different. I like that you mentioned your MFA and writing a book that was very much putting into practice what you, you learned from your MFA, right? You called it your MFA baby. How much freedom does an MFA give you to write a book? I know you're learning the craft, right? But how much freedom do you have to write intuitively whilst undertaking an MFA? And mm. I, I, you're, most of the re- re, um, writers I've had on the podcast, most of them have done an MFA. Is an MFA necessary in order to get published? And how much traction does an MFA give you as a writer who's looking to be published? So I published a book before I did my MFA. So I did not go into the MFA program because I wanted to be published. 
I did it for practical reasons because, again, like I mentioned, as a writer, sometimes you're poor, you need to find other ways to live. So for me, it was a way to learn how to teach literature because my MFA program gives you that option of teaching. And the MFA is a terminal degree. Once you have it, you can teach. But then a, a problem cropped up or cropped up because I want to teach on this continent. And this is a continent that loves its PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know. I don't know how much um, how much convincing I can do with my MFA right now. I've managed to live without teaching so far, and I think I'm happier. Like too too much politics in the university system that I don't want to get involved in. But I did the MFA because I wanted to teach. The program I went to was N- NYU's two year program. I loved it because of the band of friends I had. Um, there was just amazing synergy between all of us. Talking about the kinds of freedom you have, if I'm critical of it, there were moments when my writing did feel like it had to explain what it was doing in order for my teachers and some of my classmates to understand. That took away the freedom from this African writer. I couldn't just be as wild as I wanted to. If I tried to write something in Pigeon, they'd be like, uh, what is this? You know? So I haven't read um, my second book in a while. I never reread them, but like read from, from it. But I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that work of going back to see who I was writing for. I thought I was writing for me, but maybe being in the MFA program and then being published by a Dutch, Anglo-Dutch publishing house. For a non-Dutch audience. <laughs> for, you. for a non-Dutch audience would have colored how I wrote the book. And I, I, I want to go back and see how I wrote it. If I re- truly did have the freedom to do the things that I wanted. Writing The Hundred Dollars of Salaga opened up that door, gave me that freedom. Writing with Bibi, because I was able to do that with her, I can do that with anybody now. And if you don't want it, you don't want me, you know? Um, or my work. Like, it seems like Bibi put a stamp on you. Like you can't not be around Bibi, and not catch a bit of a fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not possible. It is not possible. I asked you to pick a song that captures the link between the hundred dollars of Salaga and the deep blue between, and you mm-hmm. picked Afeto. Muito mansata à vista quando chegas reta e firme. Que pouco posso fazer para te fazer mutar. Teu pudor foi transmitido e será neutralizado. Teu pudor foi transmitido. Se soubesses abraçar. Such a great song. I, the first time I heard that song, I was at a local theater. I was using their foyer area to do some work, and the mm-hmm. song came up, and I was like, Scrooge! <laughs> what is that? What a straight up Shazam! Why that song? And the a cappella version, not just, yeah, the a cappella. She, she does it with another musician who is on guitar, the acoustic version. 
also calming. So I picked Affetto by Myra Andrade because it's just such a sweet song and, and it speaks to my soul for some reason. And I think the connection between the Deep Blue Between and the Hundred Wells of Salaga is one of sisterhood, sisters going to search for each other, sisters leaving each other behind. There's a certain sweetness that comes with having sisters. I have one sister. Even though we fight a lot and disagree, that bond, and I don't know, I know like there's some people who don't get along with their siblings or sisters, but I, I was lucky enough to have a sister who does feel like family. Because sometimes you end up in a, chosen, in, in a family that you didn't quite choose and everybody feels like a stranger to you, but she, she doesn't. She feels like she's mine. Same with my, with my son. I felt like I knew him before I met him. Is that that sisterly bond and affetto? Just the acoustic version, there's something in it that has the same sweetness and lightness and it cradles you. It's like you're in this space and you know you're safe. Everything can fall away and you'll be carried. And I think for me, that is the thing that made writing the deep blue between so seamless because I'd done it with the hundred dollars of Salaga. I'd done the research and I knew these people in and out. I could just be carried and swept in the process and, you know, swathed and, and rocked like a baby and affetto. You should listen to the acoustic version. It really does stuff for you, especially like that end. I, I, oh, I didn't, oh. <laughs> Nobody has made me sing ever. <laughs> Only Sarah of Books and Rhymes. <laughs> I'm such a shy singer. <laughs> I mean, I love to do it, but <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> Is it any good? Because <laughs> songs do something, especially yeah, when you relate to something that sparks joy. Yeah, that that is this song sparks joy and. Um, the Hundred Wells of Salaga was quite heavy to write. And even, even the deep blue between was, but I think I wanted to be carried by another spirit, a different kind of spirit with this book. And Joy was definitely one of them, one of the many spirits. Both books are really big. Hundred Wells of Salaga was first published, and that is literary fiction, but historical fiction. You know you are reading about real places, real people, um, real events. So the topics and themes in Hundred of Slugger are really broad. You cover politics, far-reaching politics, imperialism, slavery within the hinterlands, the ways in which slavery was used as a means of wielding power, right? How certain chiefs chose to enslave conquered towns and cities so that they can wield power over them and i think that when people talk about culpability it's very binary black and white yeah. there you go but in the hundred wells it's very complex it's about the ways in which 
the enslaved becomes a slaver. Even one who intellectually abhors slavery enslaves others. If the Hundred Dogs of Slaga is telling the story of the people who were displaced and enslaved within what is modern day Ghana, mm-hmm. the deep blue between follows that story outside. So it doesn't just cross, cross the ocean, it crosses borders. The deep blue between you cover Accra, Lagos, Brazil. In the Hundred Wells, the story is set around, in my mind, it is set on the cusp of abolition. So we know that a lot of European states has ab- had abolished slavery, but did they really? Mm. Did they really? Did they turn a blind eye to what was going on because it was serving their interests? We know that Brazil was the last country to abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. In the time that our character is situated in Brazil, we imagine that slavery is, is not as the word is not the right word I'm using. Potent as mm-hmm. it was. Right. I think, I think it is the right word because it, it has been diluted. It's, it's simmering under the surface. So it has lost its potency, but it, it's still there. It's still simmering, um, even though it has been abolished for a few years at the point in which the reader is introduced to these characters. But in, in everything, in the way people react with interact with each other and the way the town is arranged it's still there it's still alive it's still festering mm-hmm. so, yeah and so in both books i couldn't help but see parallels in every episode because i'm usually in conversation with writers continental and diaspora african writers the phrase african literature always comes up mm-hmm. over and over again with the deep blue between i feel that you are expanding that not just expanding it as a writer of Ghanaian ancestry, writing a story that begins in Accra in modern-day Ghana, mm-hmm. goes to Lagos, modern-day Nigeria. So we go to Salvador and Bahia in Brazil. And if you read the Hundred Walls of Salaga very closely, you will see that there are parallels in slavery within the country mm-hmm. and the mutation from slavery to colonial mm-hmm. rule mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you have religious control you're also talking about control as well euro christianity versus traditional religions islam as well how traditional religion and imported religions come into play in people's lives and then there is also racial hierarchy as well it was not explicit but the racialization of power mm-hmm. is present yeah. in both books it's, as well yeah I, like i said big Big, big, big. So I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> Thank you for this really close and apt reading of, of both books. I don't think the writer herself has done this work. <laughs> the writer did the main work. <laughs> the obvious question I want to ask you is this. Why was it important for you to situate this story in this particular timeline? One. And two, usually a writer would write a story and that's it but you decided to continue the story and for our listeners Hundred Dogs of Salaga is a story of two women one is a daughter of a chief the chief's rule is under threat from constant European encroachment within his region he's a powerful chief but he's also fighting with a chief of a rival in, in his own family 
for people who are wondering, because there's a lot of false narratives about European encroachment on the continent. Most of them perpetuated by Europeans. In the hundred worlds, you see the way, you see the very many things that informed and pushed European encroachment within the hinterland. Moving on to the narrative of the hundred of Salaga, you have two women, two very different socioeconomic group. One is from an, an aristocratic family. The other is from a lower socioeconomic background, right. from a pastoral community. Mm -hmm. But her home is raided, raided by slavers. And she, her siblings, are, they are displaced. Tragedy strikes the family. Older sister and her three siblings are taken away in a very violent way, right? One thing I like, I, 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 want to thank you for doing in this book or not doing in this book is to just hammer and belabor the point to the reader you, you trust the reader to be intelligent enough to know what is going on in this family there's an older sister a set of twins and the boy so these set of twins the older sister tries as much as possible to keep them together but there's only so much you can do and these twins are separated Hododos of Salaga follows the older sister who is Amina when she goes to Salaga. So Salaga was the slave trading capital. We read Hododos of Salaga, we read her, ad well, I don't want to say adventure, but adventure. It is kind of an adventure book. In, in, my, in my heart, it was, honestly. Um, I remember looking at competitions. There's one that's like a travel writing competition. And I was like, even though tragedy is happening to this woman, she is going on an adventure. It, like we shouldn't pigeonhole books like it's just a slavery narrative she's she also has agency she also does things i'm glad that you called her that both books are historical travelogues mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. the parallel telling of the same story the question i want to ask you is this why that particular time zone i know you've talked about your grandmother this particular time zone in the 1800 why why twins why center women in this telling of the story and why were they also complex characters that are so deeply flawed you want to root for them sometimes other times you don't want to root for them um you like them but then you want to just give them a nice clap slap. Around. <laughs> slap. <laughs> some slaps here and there you know, a nice one two one two mm -hmm. yeah. why um so answer your questions um in a roundabout manner beginning with the second one first, why women? Um, I grew up in a household of matriarchs. This is so interesting because I've been um, working on marriage because marriage is a big thing. So one of the people I was talking to, she said to me, she says, you're an Ashanti, right? So I said, yes. She said, you know, in the Ashantis, the women do everything. So the Ashantis are that ethnic group in the middle of Ghana. Ruche's dad's rival ethnic group, the one who is um, oppressing him in, in certain regards. And it's true. I'm thinking about it now. And my grandmother, till she passed on, she was doing things, always doing things, going to market, enterprising, doing this, doing that. She had a school. My aunts, I, I haven't seen them like, just sit. They're always busy. And this is even on my father's side, which is a more patrilineal society. Um, I see my aunt on that side and my grandmother, who is descended from Amina, quote unquote. She was a bread baker and she used that to pay for my father's school fees. So I have 
all these stories around me of women who don't just sit down and wait for stuff to happen to them. This is how I grew up. You go to the market scene in Ghana, women are running the show. Market women, you don't want to mess with them. They are formidable. Clear the animals. <laughs> I told you. That's a formidable bark. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So I think just subconsciously or even unconsciously, I knew I would write about women. And so with my second book, the craft book I told you about, that's when I said, okay, let me try a man's voice. So that's the, the book, the first book in which I say, I'm going to try my hands at this. But if I'm going with my soul and what I want to do, I think for the most part, I want to write women's stories. Also because once I started the work of research, we were glaringly absent. There's a famous story of Nana Asmao, who's included in Margaret Busby's wonderful um, New Daughters of Africa. She's a Nigerian before Nigeria's Nigeria, but I'll call her Nigerian woman for simplicity. Author, translator, poet, just all round badass. So she has been writing a while. And then this Lord comes to visit, this European Lord comes to visit her husband. This man does not mention Anna Asma once in any of his records. Like the closest thing he comes to like acknowledging her presence is he says something like, oh, Mohammedan women in this place seem to have a lot more freedom than their counterparts in other, part of the, other parts of the world. Nana Asmao, in this time, I can imagine she, she's been organizing women, she's teaching them, she has, a, she has a, a group of teachers who go out. She's not going to be a woman who, maybe she was a humble person, I don't know, but still, I feel like she would have exuded something. Not once, he mentions her husband, he mentions her brother, but this woman is so absent. I don't like feeling obligated or obliged to do things as a writer, but this is one instance where I have to write those stories because we've been written out of history. Why this time and place? So I did a bit of calculating because in this instance, the Hundred Walls of Salaga, I was writing about this woman first. She, this ancestor who had been enslaved. I think she stirred up feelings in me of both shame and pride. Shame because who likes to say that they were enslaved or like we've been so conditioned to to feel inferior if we've suffered any such injustice. But if the world were flipped the right way, the people who inflict injustices who should feel this shame. But the world as it is right now, the shame is on the enslaved and generations afterwards that shame carries on. That was a feeling that began in me. And then the next one was, was pride. Like, it sounds like she was a survivor. If I'm here today, this woman survived something. Yes, she was called the slave. And actually, details, more details are coming out now. Um, when I wrote the book, nobody would talk about her. In the last year, that slave wives wear a scarf in this place. And then the wives who are married don't. So these are details that didn't make it, didn't make the directorial cut into the Hundred Rolls of Salaga. But that's a work of art and there'll be constantly things that come and even shift the narrative. And for me, it's a conversation. So yeah, I learned that she, she wore a scarf. So this is probably even post the book because when Mary Morrow, then maybe she has to wear a scarf. And then it implies that there are certain parts of the story that don't go with what I imagine. But 
it's fine. So I did the math. I had to write about this woman. And since my grandmother was born in 1933, her mother, who was daughter of this woman, had to be born around 1880 something. So I started doing research and whoa, what a time this was. This is on the cusp of the colonial project. There's this infighting within this family or this ethnic group. The Asante are still trying to have a hold on everybody in the region. So as a storyteller, this is just, there's so much dramatic fiber and stuff and intrigue. And so I'm like, this, this story, the story is writing itself. All I have to do now is sit down, put myself in the world and just paint, just paint. So that, that was why I chose to write it in, in that time. And then in terms of the complexity of the characters, I think that's what I aim to do as a writer. I do, I'm a writer who loves character. When I'm reading novels, I, I, plot is great. You keep me going. Beautiful writing, of course, will buoy me through the whole reading process. But give me a good character any day. Like, what's her name? And like a, like a mule bringing ice cream to the sun. Um, Murayo. I cannot forget her. Like you said, like the names might escape you, but the, the, the characters, it's like you've spent time with a person and grown to know them. So that's what I aim to do as a, as a, as a writer. Where does Deep Blue Between sit? And what does it contribute to this global conversation between continental and diaspora Africans who feel betrayed? by the ancestors who participated in their displacement? I think it is doing a few things. The first one is saying, let's have a conversation. It's a conversation starter. Like, did you know that even though this horrible exodus was forced on, on ancestors, and I say ah because it's one family, there were some people who broke out of that and actually came back home. Do you know that actually were able to come back to these places of exile and transform things? Let's start the conversation with the deep blue between. That's one thing. Two, I don't know if it's my apology, but because I think The Hundred Walls of Salaga is the book in which I, I make that apology of saying, sorry, we did this to each other. Sorry, we did this to you. If The Hundred Walls of Salaga said, Let's see what we did to each other. We are really sorry. The deep blue between is now the bridge. How, how do we get you back? Like these, these ones who came back. How do we get you back? And we know you've made your homes in these new spaces. You don't have to uproot yourselves and come back. But how do we connect ourselves again? I think it's, it's doing that work. How do we bridge things and be on an equal footing to just rebuild those links again to show that you don't have to feel like you've lost home. I think the third thing that it can do is to say that we will, we will find you, we'll come and join you. I asked you to pick a song that captures the geographical landscape of the deep blue between. And you couldn't choose one. <laughs> so here they are. And it's a perfect segue because I think these songs are doing that work of bridge building. I didn't realize it now, but these songs are doing that work. So the three songs I chose were Sampa's Great Energy, D'Angelo's Africa, and Nina, Nina Simone's You Never Walk Alone. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
all three are yeah super, yeah. super yeah. and I, I don't think just one of them on its own is enough to capture this geographic and spiritual range in that I was trying to play with in the book. Great Energy is a song from a daughter of the soil who lives in the UK, I believe, Samba. So somebody who has traveled outside. Intuition and ambition, intuition strength. Intuition and ambition running through my veins. But what the love, let the healing begin. The guys of the D'Angelo is a descendant, as is Nina Simone, of the continent who were two people who were born in exile. D'Angelo's Africa is, is a yearning, it's, a, it's like a call to, to find home again. Africa is my descent, and here I'm far from home. I dwell within the land that's meant. Just the, the movement and the jazz in that song can bring you to tears in one minute and then the next you're like, wow, it's so uplifting. Nina Simone's You Never Walk Alone, it's one of the songs one of her songs in which she doesn't sing, it's just a piano piece. says a lot without even the, the need for, for lyrics or words. And I think Nina Simone in particular is one artist who did that work of bridge building. I think she lived or visited Ghana a lot. So she as an artist in herself is doing that work of crossing the divide, moving through space, moving across the ocean and coming back and saying, look, reclaim Africa as yours in whatever way you want. But you can come back if you want. And great energy. I discovered Sampa not that long ago, but for me, I think it's the youth and her exuberance and just how much of a force she is in this tiny little person. And I think of the twins and, and that's what they are to me as well. They're these teeny boppers, teenager, teenage girls who in their sides of the world, in their own ways, are just full of change and, and, and hope and all of that. And Sampa's music does that for me. Yeah, there's, there's rage, there's good rage, there's power, there's a lot. And like I said, this tiny person is just packing in so much. And I think when I think of the deeply between and the characters it has, that, that is the song that does it for me. I like how you have labeled it bridge building. It's a really great metaphor because these sisters are separated by waters and in the deep blue between, their dreams are the bridge 
that backs them. Bringing it to modern day, this could be aspirational dreams of returning home or dreams like in the book, a spiritual tethering to your ancestral land, that which you have been exiled from forcefully, you're still connected to. So you play with what readiness is and you also play with searching and yearning the idea of running away that sometimes you think you are looking for something but in fact you are running away and so in the deep blue between you you tell the story of victoria who goes from accra to lagos then lagos in lagos she meets a brazilian an afro-brazilian woman who initiates her into this religious practice and then they go to Brazil for a reason which we're not going to disclose, but they go to Brazil because it was necessary for them to do so. And in Brazil, she experiences a different kind of Black experience, a different kind of Africanness. Once again, situation necessitates mm-hmm. that Victoria returns. What was it like writing that arc? Magical. It's a word I've used a lot, (laughs) but it really was that. I think at its heart, that was what I was going for, that that movement, that migration that was not unidirectional, where people went and came and went and came. Yes, I wanted the girls to go in search of each, each other, but I think the big theme was these people who actually go to Mecca, as you, as you put it, to deepen their religion, to get the herbs and the, everything they need to practice their religion properly, going back to source and then coming back. That act of coming back is a necessary one because Yaya, is, is, she's freed herself. She's managed to free herself, but one free person is not enough. So she's coming back to do the work of freeing other people. And I think that is important as well. Yaya is very much a person who's like, yeah, Kwame Nkrumah, all these figures we've had in, in the continent's past where, yes, Kwame Nkrumah is working for Ghana's liberation, but then he says the liberation of Ghana will mean nothing if the rest of the con- continent is, is still in shackles. So that, that work, Yaya is, is a freedom fighter. So I think um, now that I'm, I'm sitting back and pulling away the, the, the magical gloves, that's, that's who Yaya is. And um, she's really, really important. And even now for us all to do this work, because a lot of us are still enslaved. <laughs> so we need those people who are going to come and say, okay, I've done that work. Here, here are the keys. Here, this, here's how you do it. And Ayikwe Amatumi was one of those people. I've had one of those people. So I'm hoping to do that same work with other people. Like to, You read the deep blue between, and I hope you can see them also giving you keys you need. What was your intention in situating religions in these specific ways and weaving it in these stories? It was a very selfish intention. I grew up in a household that was interfaith or multi-faith. My father is Muslim, my mother is Christian. And as a teenager, I struggled with faith. What to believe? If I stick with my mother, my father is condemned to hell because he doesn't accept Jesus as his personal savior. If I stick to my dad, my mother has to convert to his religion or she's also condemned to, to Hades. So it was a very confusing time. Even before my teen years, 
And then I am a teenager, I go to, I live in a mostly Christian part of the country, of Ghana. The southern part is very Christian. And I go to boarding school and to fit in, I sort of go to church with everybody. Um, mind you, I haven't been baptized. My parents decided not to baptize me. Uh, but I'm going to church and feeling like, okay, this might be... Hilarious. Are you sure you're not, uh, are you sure you're not Hussein? I know, right? Because this sounds very Hussein. <laughs> I think I wrote it for, for the teen out there who is not sure what to believe. For most African children, you're born into a household and you are what your parents say you are. Maybe that's changing now. Maybe some people say you can believe what, what you want. You do the work. I, I don't know how many people actually do that in their households now. I think I'm going to take that approach with my son, which is what my parents did with us. They... I had a, a Quran and I had a Bible. I could read both and come to my own decision. There were points when it was confusing. But I think if I had read a book like The Deep Blue Between, which sort of lays out all the options, like, like know what happened. This is how Christianity became a part of the fabric of this society. Islam is touched on a bit in The Hundred Laws of Salaga, but I have another book that I'm going to be writing soon that's going to do the, thing, the same thing with Islam. And it's actually, I know the title for the first time in my life. So Nazanjina is an important figure in the Dagomba people, the Dagomba, an ethnic group mentioned in The Hundred Laws of Salaga. They are my father's people. I'm a Dagomba girl. But this fig figure, Nazanjina, he was the first convert to Islam. So I want to write a story. This is circa 16, end of the 1600s. So more historical fiction coming right up. So I would have loved to read books like that as a teenager that just lay out what happened. Don't cover it up because you have a Christian agenda or a Muslim agenda. Just tell me the facts. Tell me what happened and help me or let me decide myself. I I think it was a very um, deliberate reason for including all these religions. And I tried to be objective, like everything, everything is in there. So I'm not condemning one over the other, but I'm showing you this is how, this is what happened when these two religions met. One was forced underground and one was the, the cover, the, you know, the phenotype. This is what people had to express themselves as. And again, conversation starter. So I asked you if Hassana and Husseina, the primary protagonists of The Deep Blue Between, could communicate with Amina and their father. So we've established that Amina, their older sister, and their father were separated in the Hundred Dolls of Salaga. So if Hassana and Husseina could communicate with Amina and their father through a song, which song will it be? And why did you pick this song? I chose uh, Salif Keita's Musulu. Hakili maya malo musula katolole. It's so beautiful. It's a song filled with yearning and I didn't know what it meant. And I said, okay, Sarah is going to ask me questions. Let me just find out what it means. So I, I texted one of my friends from Mali and she says it means the woman, which is interesting because especially um, with 
Baba, the twins, and Amina's father. He leaves a group of women back home. We don't know why, and I think in the Salaga universe, like somebody said, his story might get written. We don't know why. There's a friend who likes calling people rat bastards. I don't know if he's a rat bastard. I don't know if something happened to him. But the woman, that's what they're going to say to their father. Maybe he was a rat bastard who decided he didn't want to take care of his family anymore. He didn't give off those vibes. But again, this is me working. Yeah, he really didn't give off those vibes. But people are people and people can be very strange. But I don't know what happened to Baba. I, I don't know what happened to Baba. I swear. <laughs> Sarah has given me the side eye. Serious side eye. I don't know what happened to him. I think the, the, the things that went through my mind where that there were there were things like the trans-saharan trade that we haven't talked about which were ongoing for a long time even as the transatlantic slave sort of ground to a halt the trans-saharan slave was much older and that was the route that baba went on that's as much as i know maybe his spirit is going to come back and speak to me just the same way the twins did um and I'm really, I, I'm really loving this process of just letting the characters speak to me and, and being less analytical about everything. Like, I have to do this. When the time comes, I'll feel his spirit. And oh, if it does come, I don't know if it will ever come. I asked you to pick a book that you would recommend to listeners and readers who wish to further explore the themes and topics of the deep blue between, paired with a song. And I asked you to feel free to do the same for The Hundred Dollars of Salaga. So I went for very academic books because I think a lot of people who want to read more on this theme will probably want to have more meat on the, on the bones of this topic, I think. But I'm happy for readers to reach out to me if they want more fiction um, about similar themes. So I went for a book called um, The Slave Rebellion in Brazil. I think it's called, I, in my head, I call it the Mali Rebellion because that's what it was about. It was... Um, in the, it was in 1834. Um, it was called sort of like the Muslim rebellion because it was people who had been um, brought in from mostly what would be present day Mali, Niger, like the hinterlands, even where the, the, the hundred walls of Salaga is said it could be Northern Ghana because they had a Muslim identity. So these people, were so-called because once, I guess, the rebellion had been quashed, um, they found amulets with Arabic inscriptions and um, quotations from the Quran and things like that. So that made the authorities think that it was mostly a, a Muslim insurgency. But truth is, it was different people, different um, groupings within Brazil. There were the Angolans, there were the Yoruba groupings. I think they were called the Nagos at the time. There were people from different regions who came together to put together this um, um, pushback against the um, colonial authorities. So that's a book I, I recommend. It explains a bit of yeah why Yaya is who she is and why she does that work of freeing people and how um, there's power in in bridge building and working with what comes from the continent and, and in working together. Yeah, how there's power and in, in unity. And I think that's a message that was also in the Hundred Laws of Salaga. And I paired that with um, 
a song by Astrid Gilberto um, called A Felicidade. Tristeza não tem fim, felicidade sim. A felicidade é como a pluma que o vento vai levando pelo ar. Voa tão leve, mas tem a vida breve. Which on, on its surface sound, sounds like a song about happiness. But when you read those lyrics, it's kind of heartbreaking. It's like pain is always there. You're yearning for happiness, but there's always there's still pain. You're yearning for happiness, but there's still pain. You're working together. And I, I think that was the emotion that came through as I was reading this book about um, the Mali Rebellion. Two steps forward, and then you were thrown back because every, all your efforts would be thrown apart. So. That dance and how painful it was, but you, you keep dancing because you know the end goal. And then the second book, which is for the 100 Walls of Salaga, is a book by Akosia Aduma Pebi. It's called Indigenous Slavery in Ghana. And that explains the internal slave trade in Ghana. And I paired it with a very modern song by Mensa. There's a duo in Ghana. They're irreverent and wonderful. The fucking voice, Mensa and One Love. So this is Mensa's song, and it's called Ejuma. It's about work, about labor, and I thought it was just fitting because the whole idea of slavery is when it became a machine was very linked to the idea of labor and working. So I thought those two songs were went together. A friend asked me the other day to um, suggest 10 books by Ghanaian writers for her. Amata Aidu, I believe she said, who said there are no writers in Ghana? Shut up! Have you read <laughs> Aisha Haruna Atta? That is, those were Amata Shut up! <laughs> I know, I was like, wow, thank you, Auntie Amata. <laughs> she actually said, shut up! Yeah. <laughs> she said, shut up, that yeah, gets yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, lo I love it. So please um, recommend books by Ghanaian writers. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So we'll start with Ayukwe Ama. My favorite is The Healers, which is a book that will also go with The Hundred Walls of Salaga, com companion book for The Hundred Walls of Salaga, The Healers. Ama Tayadu's No Sweetness Here. Yeah. Uh, let's go for um, Cloth Girl, Marilyn Hewitt Mills. Um, another companion piece to both Hundred Wells and The Deep Blue Between. Um, Tale of the Bluebird by Nia Ikwe Yeah. We do BC Ajipons um, of Women and Frogs. Um, let's do um, Nana Ikwe Abruhaman's um, Powder Necklace. And then we're going to do Bwachiwa Glova. She, she's very um, in Ghana, very much in the Ghanaian scene, not very international. I wish she were, but she does thrillers, like she does page turners. So the book I'd re recommend from her is The Justice. Um, 
Then we have our famous Ghanaian writers. We have Taisa Lassie. I don't know if Nigeria claims her too, but this Ghana must go. <laughs> and we have Yajesi with Homegoing. Ruby Goka, she's a young writer. She does mostly young adult books. But she's so pro- prolific and she's a dentist. I don't know how she does it. So we have 10. Oh, and I, I have to mention this because I have to, and we have 11 now. The Prophets of Zongo Street. Amazing short story collection by Muhammad Nasiu Ali. Everybody must read that amazing collection. Of course, I have all of Amar Taidu's works. Um, I have a few by uh, Aikwe Amar, but I don't have the healer, so I'm trying to track down the healer. I think for Aikwe, if you can get his version, it would make a world of difference to him as well. The Pet Ankh version, this is the, the publishing house. Support him because he had, he fought long and hard to get ownership of his titles again and he talks about it in this book as well um the eloquence of the scribes so thank you so much aisha sincerely sincerely as a reader it is an immeasurable joy to read a well-written book so thank you for for the deep blue between thank you thank you sarah thank you for having me on the podcast on books and rhymes i have been waiting for this day for so long so i should thank you Thank you for the close reading. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Aisha Haruna Attar. I hope you found the conversation as thought-provoking, enriching and inspiring as much as I did. Support Aisha Haruna Attar's work by purchasing copies of her books, visiting her website, aishaatta.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Books and Rhymes. Subscribe, rate and review Books and Rhymes podcasts on Apple Podcasts and your favourite podcast listening platforms. You can continue to indulge in the universe that Aisha Haruna Atta has created in her novels by subscribing to and listening to the playlist of songs specially curated by Aisha Haruna Atta. The link is in the show notes. Have a most, most, most excellent week and see you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 